You're listening to The Pointed Nose, a podcast produced by Ophion Media. I'm your host, Adam Reese. My guest today is the violinist and educator, Dr. Lisa Terry. My guest today is Dr. Lisa Terry, a tremendously talented violinist, composer, arranger, and educator. Over the years, she's played with groups including the Uptown String Quartet, the Max Roach Double Quartet, the Women's Jazz Orchestra, the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra, and the Lisa Terry Collective, among many others. As a studio musician, she's worked with major recording artists and in film and TV. Her recording credits include the soundtracks to Do the Right Thing and Jungle Fever. She's also worked with artists including Bill Lee, Youssef Latif, James Newton, Jimmy Heath, Benny Golson, and Cecil Bridgewater. And she has decades of experience uh, teaching music as well as teaching music appreciation. Uh, Finally, Dr. Terry comes from a highly musical family. Both of her parents were musicians. Her twin sister, Mona, is a wonderful harpist. Her late sister, Zella, was a celebrated cellist who spent a significant piece of her career in France. Uh, And Dr. Terry is also a cousin to the legendary trumpet and flugelhorn player, Clark Terry, Uh, And many other of your relatives play music as well. Uh, So Lisa Terry, I want to thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, Adam. It's an honor to be here. I want to start from the very beginning. Um, What are some of the earliest experiences you can remember uh, that involved music or involved music making? Hmm. Well, I come from musical parents, and um, it was always their desire that we should play, me, me and, and my three sisters mm. at the time. And uh, so it, it started for me personally when my mother pulled um, a violin out of the closet. Mm. And I simply said, ooh, what's that? And then I was all in. And how um, old were you? Ooh about seven eight wow and um we had all started on piano first my mother was a pianist so she Mm. she taught us um piano early piano and then it was always her desire to have um a cellist a violinist and pianist and so sort of replicate the the work of um heifetz uh piatagorsky and rubenstein Mm. trio Mm. And um, that's exactly what happened. Um, We all started on piano. I went to violin. My twin sister, Mona, um, get it, Mona Lisa, (laughs) my father's doing. Um, Mona chose the piano and then later um, started playing harp. Mm. And then Zella um, chose cello, the cello. That was her desire and her hope. There is a fourth sister. who isn't often uh, t- discussed because she didn't really um, take to playing music so much. Mm. But Terry was there, and mm. and my father made a a toy guitar for her out of a piece of plywood. Oh wow! And um, so she could sort of s- sit in. She was really little, mm. and um, so that the guitar was really a bass. Yes, <laughs> she'd stand <laughs> up and she would imitate the bass. But um, so that's sort of how we started, and. Um, began to play, take lessons, um, mm. join the, the orchestras and ensembles at our, at our elementary school first, mm. and then junior high school, and then eventually high school. And it's funny, because just recently I was able to look at um, my high school um, 
yearbook. And I was astonished. I didn't remember this, but there was um, a year where uh, Mona and Zella and myself were all principal players in the orchestra. And this is when oh. orchestras, high school orchestras were a big thing, you know, yeah. had large programs. But all three of us were principal players. I was concertmaster, Zella was principal cello, and Mona was actually principal bass because she also played bass. No way. So oh, the wow. Terry sisters just dominated the, <laughs> the orchestra scene, you know. And, um, but it was for me a very special moment of understanding what our parents had poured into us. Mm -hmm. And the fruits of their labor had really come to, come to um, full view early on in the, in those orchestras so um and that was like by ages you're saying elementary school orchestras you were so you were still probably 10 10 to yeah 12, nine yeah. It, 10 11 maybe and then on to junior high school mm. um where i was also concert master you know wow. and and then high school um years. and this was all in pasadena yes uh-huh yes wow in altadena yeah in altadena. yeah wow yeah. And what did your father play? You said your mother was a pianist. My father played tuba, actually. Um, no way. When uh, he lived in, he's from, he was from St. Louis, Missouri, mm. and so there, there was a rich tradition there of, of um, ensembles that would travel on the riverboats up and oh. down the Mississippi, and so I don't know what took him initially to the tuba. But somehow he embraced it and and did find a, a gig on a riverboat, playing on a riverboat. Wow. Um, and then he started his family, um, the family that was before I came along, but um, and sort of put the tuba to the side. Mm. Um, and then later in life he had an opportunity. He was working in a place where there was a, there was a school and there was a tuba in the room. And I believe he... He took he give, gave it a shot and, okay. and uh, started playing on it and it sort of all came back to him. Mm. But he he comes from that school of brass players um, um, also, and I'm sure you know this. Um, Clark Terry from mm. St. Louis as well, oh, a very right, important right, right. trumpet player. Um, that school of um, of brass playing. Mm. So he comes out of that tradition, and um, there's sort of a funny story, uh, a, a heartwarming story, I should say. There was a period of time my father was um, in, a, they called it a sanatorium, where they would pe pe put people who had... Um, tuberculosis exactly. and stuff, right? And he had, he had tuberculosis and was in this facility for, I think, seven years. It was insane. Um, but one of the Terry's passed away and you know just like the tradition in New Orleans where there's a funeral that mm. in a procession has happened in St. Louis too so uh, my father was not going to be denied, be denied the opportunity to come and play wow. in this procession play tuba in this procession mm. so he busted out somehow he wasn't wow. supposed to get out but he busted out to come to this procession and it's actually Clark Terry that told me this story about my father. Wow. And his um, amazement at hearing this tuba sound coming down the street, he couldn't even see him. Mm. And Clark kept saying, that sound, that sound, that sound. And 
here comes my father with a tuba, and Clark said, of course it was Charlie playing. Of course mm. it was Charlie. And I think there's there's something about that because I even notice, you know, um, with the way, the way I play, the way my sister, the cellist played, Mona also, mm. all of us have this thing about sound and tone. Yeah. That is, it's not... It's not a typical kind of thing. It, we're reaching from another place, and I don't mm. entirely know what that is, what mm. that place is. But to grab a hold of the spirit and the sound that transcends the, the physical limitations of an instrument or a place or whatever it may be, mm. to find something else to, to bring to bear in the expression. Mm. And um, there it was with my father you know, as told mm. by Clark. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, starting with Clark, Terry, and then you and, and all of your sisters, I mean, timbre is such a huge part of uh, your musicality. Mm. Uh, it's, you know, it's not just what notes are we playing, you know, where are we in the changes? It's It, it has a lot to do with, uh, yeah, with the, the sound. And I think that that probably has a lot to do with how, you know, music from the Terry's uh, tends to have such a strong emotional impact or emotional component, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. to me at least as a listener, because when I hear it, it, uh, you know, it's not just somebody getting up there and playing, you really feel the sense of deliberation mm -hmm. um, that, has, that has gone into sort of the selection of every note. Mm -hmm. um, it's amazing, yeah, I wonder how far back that goes. Well, so talking about your father and, and about Clark Terry, what actually was their relationship uh, to each other? They were first cousins or? They were cousins, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, so um, I, Clark has been called my father and at one point someone called him my husband. I said, no, no, oh no. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> we, won't, we won't go there. Uh, but um, he was kind of a, an uncle t figure to me, mm. my relationship with him. It was very, very close when I, I didn't know him growing up. Right. And um, I, I met him, um, oh gosh, I was in junior college at PCC mm. in Pasadena. Oh, wow. And um, I'd heard about him for years. My father had already passed. Mm. I'd heard about Clark Terry. I took a jazz improvisation class and, and the instructor talked about Clark and I'm like okay I need to meet him I need to know him so mm. I wrote him a letter and I didn't hear an answer for several months mm. and then finally from Switzerland came this letter of course Clark was on the road traveling and um, a handwritten letter from Clark Terry wow. to say how happy he was that I reached out to him to mm. find him and that we would one day meet well he came to to Los Angeles and played at the Parisian Room. I don't know if you remember that place. It's way before your it time. Might be before my time. This little dive on, uh, I believe it's La Brea in Washington. Okay. Old jazz players will know it. Yeah, Because sure, everybody sure. that came to town played there. Right. And Clark was playing there this night. So I went uh, with um, a trombone boyfriend player of mine at the time. He surprised me, actually. I didn't know I was going to hear Clark. Oh, wow. Um, and um, 
So we went in and sat down and I'm like, okay, I had never been to a jazz club before and it was rather interesting. <laughs> that was your first experience <laughs> first in a jazz club, yeah. wow. And then Clark walks out and I was just, mm. and so we're sitting in the front row and Clark keeps looking down at me like, ah, don't, do I know you? Don't, don't I know you? Don't I know you? And then finally, you know, after he took a break, I went up to him and introduced myself and, um, from that point, he called me half dimps because when I smile, I have half of a dimple and just embraced me like he'd always known me. And um, um, and so we made a really beautiful and powerful connection. And then I eventually moved to New York and where he lived, um, mm. near where he lived. And so I, Clark and I were together a lot. You know, I travel with him. I just go over to the house. I just sit up under him and learn mm. you know mm. um and he was a taskmaster i mean yeah. he, the way he taught it was always with love but it was very he didn't let you settle mm. he didn't let you get it mm. right before you he really had it down solid what he was trying to teach he push you on to something else and so i was always in this state of <laughs> flux but he knew he was doing that it's, it was very purposeful uh-huh um, because he didn't want me to ever get comfortable because I grew up as a classical player. European classical music was I trained in that. Right, right. So I was accustomed to the page. I was accustomed to things being, you know, written out, charted out. Mm. He didn't want, he wanted to give me a completely different experience mm. where you're, okay, you're thrown this idea or this set of situ uh, circumstances. What are you going to do with it? How are you going to take it and mold it and shape it into something of your own mm. and have the flexibility to move in the way that you needed to move to get the job done? Wow. And um, it was a really brilliant way, you know, and using your ear and using, you know, watching him and just taking in what he was doing. It wasn't about getting it perfectly. It was about learning to have the ability to be flexible mm. and go for it, like, bam. To be because the magic, playing on your feet, sort of. That's right. The mm. magic is in those moments. Mm. It's not necessarily in what you prepare. Just, yeah. you know, even our conversation, you know, the magic comes, the energy comes, the spirit comes in those moments and learning to trust those moments. Mm. Mm. That's so interesting. Amazing. I'm curious what those sessions were like. I mean, you, you playing with Clark Terry and maybe getting your butt kicked a little bit. Totally. What, what was Just the... constantly beat up. <laughs> constantly. He would do, um, you know, because he was a brass player, he had exercises that related to uh, the way you have to tongue and the way you have to phrase um, when you blow air through an instrument, which doesn't necessarily translate to a string instrument. Mm. It's a different approach yeah because it's a different action i'm not using air i'm using a bow so the i guess the bow then would become the air sure so um he would he devised a system called the doodle system i don't know if you know about that i've i've seen him talk about it in an old video yeah i i'm tempted to try it but it's been a minute since i tried um daedle deedle doodle 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 daedle deedle doodle 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 of course clark could do it five times faster than I can. But <laughs> Super dadle, fast. But it, what it does is give you a sense of the way you ghost a note, daedle. It's not daedle, daedle. Mm. It's daedle, deedle, daedle, doodle, doodle. Mm. And you put the accent in different places. So 
I had to learn how to transfer that to a bow. Yeah. How to take that sound and transfer it to a bow in order to create a feeling of swing. Because that's what swing is. It's an intangible thing that lives in the moment. Mm. It's not something you can write down on a piece of paper. Even those words on a piece of paper fall short. Mm. Mm. You got to hear it to play it. So we would do these exercises where we would he'd go through the whole dadal system with my bow, and then we'd, he'd make up phrases that I'd play back. He would play something that I had to play it back. And I couldn't write it down. Mm. I had to hear it and then play it. Mm. And I was horrible at first. <laughs> I mean, I was pitiful because I was trying really hard to be perfect, mm. you know, mm. in the way I was accustomed. If you write it down, I can read it. Like, you know, a mad woman, I can, I can read it. But hear it and play it, mm. I was really separated from that idea of how to grab information. It's probably different parts of your brain, right? That you're accessing. Different parts of that. everything. Yeah. Because, you know, in a ten technical sense, it calls on certain things that you learn to do, you know. But when you hear it, you got to put all those things together at once. Mm. You have to synthesize it and then pull it back out again like, like that. Mm. There's no time to sit and think about it. No, you, so the best guide then becomes your ear. Mm, mm. Not your eyes reading, but your ear. Mm. And great, great improvisers are ones that can do that. Boom, they hear it, got it. Yeah. You know, they find it, they know where it is. Mm. Um, and I was just fascinated by that, that, that magical place that musicians reside, you know, mm. where they're hearing and bring it forth immediately. You know, mm. um, so, but I, you know, in his eyes, he, Clark loved me, but I never felt like I even got close, you know. Oh, wow. But I l later learned, especially when I joined Uptown String Quartet and was working with Max, I heard reports from other people how proud he was. Wow. That I was in that group and we were doing the work that we were doing. So he never told me directly, but I heard, you know, indirectly. I think a lot of those guys of that generation, there was this kind of a tough love uh, mentality where it's like, I'm not gonna nurture you up to the level that, that you wanna be at and that we all want you to be at uh, with hugs and, and uh, congratulations and, and constant, uh, you know, updates of, oh, wow, I, you know, you've improved this much uh, right. in the last number of months. It's always kind of seems to be focusing your attention on, look, you just messed that up. Look, you just messed that up. Uh, but, but it did come from a place of love because they messed it up. But what are you going to do with it? Right. Do you leave it messed up or do you find a path out of it that isn't about mess up? Mm. It's about discovering yourself mm. and discovering the beauty of what is there and cannot be seen. Mm. And he, I, I didn't mean to interrupt No, you. no, that's yeah. perfect. He, Clark was a master at that, and that was what he brought to the educational arena as well. He taught that way. He said, no, you, jazz was not born in the academy, and mm. that's true. Mm. Jazz was born in the streets. Jazz was born in life. Jazz was born in struggle. Mm. Jazz was born in the ability to overcome your circumstances. That's not the educational arena mm. at all. It's scripted, it's, it's um, 
according to someone else's opinion or design of what you need to be and what you need to become. And so he ta always taught from that perspective. Again, no mistakes, but rather other more opportunities to create something magical. You take mm. what, is, what is typically considered a mistake and you turn it into magic. Mm. And then it becomes yours and nobody can take it away from you. Mm. And I, you know, I, I, I learned that in a really beautiful and powerful way as I went on with my educational career, you know, especially when I got into um, a doctorate program mm. of where I, I felt very much like I had to, had to adhere to a particular way of doing things. But what came to me very often, either in my own memory or with someone saying something, no, stay true to Lisa Terry. Who is Lisa Terry in the mix of this? Mm. What does Lisa Terry need to say or feel or express or discover? That's your, that's your greatest um, strength, mm. is mm. knowing yourself and not deviating from it at all. Mm. Now, you may be, need to improve. You may need to grow in expression um, and, and add to... That's, I mean, add to, add to your experience with, with other ways of doing things, but stay true to who you are. Mm, mm. And Clark did that masterfully. You hear one note from Clark Terry, you know it was him. Of one phrase, one idea, even a laugh, that's Clark Terry. Yeah. No, I was just going to say that. I mean, he's, he's one of these uh, artists, recording artists, for example, where... Like you're saying, the first note, you're like, there's only one person this could be, right? And I don't know uh, what orchestra or what group I'm listening to. I don't know who any of the other musicians or soloists are. But that sound, it has to be Clark Terry. And I, I don't know, to me, again, just as, as, as someone who has listened to his recordings and, and gotten a lot of joy out of them, it sounds, his sound sounds so personal i mean was listening to it i almost feel like this is the guy's personality was, was is that accurate i mean oh absolutely his sense of humor mm. um clark had jokes like <laughs> <laughs> you know that again those were teachable moments as well because when we laugh we there's a release of of attention, you know, when you laugh, you relax, you, you're able to then receive something else, a, a suggestion, an idea, or um, a way of putting it on your horn in a way as a coded message, you mm. know, laughter, something that's funny, or something that, um, even difficulty too, there's a, co it, you develop this way of speaking on your horn, or your, your horn could be a violin too. Um, that I actually, it reminds me of what I used to do uh, playing in Uptown String Quartet. There was this, there was this joke that's for women. <laughs> and we had this joke that I really can't say on camera, but um, <laughs> someone would gesture, and I can't even do the gesture, <laughs> would gesture and, and which meant it was a coded message for um, the certain thing that related to 
something that involves some maybe what we experience some emotionally i'll say it like that okay <laughs> and um um and we would all and this would be in the middle of a concert someone if we if some, one of us played a solo that was particularly good mm. one of us would do this gesture and we'd all see it you know we do it very discreetly right but we just crack up, you know, as we're playing, we're cracking up. But again, it created another feeling mm. that was off the page. It mm. was very much about the moment and what we were creating for an audience. And oftentimes audience members would comment on that. Well, what, what's, what, what were you all doing? What was that joke about? Oh, mm. can't really tell you yeah. that. That's a coded kind of thing inside, mm. but it speaks to our femininity, speaks to um, who we were as women within a, um, a, a context of men, generally speaking. Mm, mm. It was many things, but most of all, it was empowering. Mm. Because no teacher in any college situation ever told us we could or could not do that. That's something that created, that was created in the mix of what we were when we came together. Mm. And, um, you know, <laughs> Very powerful thing. You yeah. Know? Very, very powerful thing. So um, it, it's all these things. And Clark used to do that all the time, all the time. His mumbles was a prime example of that, where he'd go, you had no idea what he was saying, but you knew everything that he was saying. Yeah. Um, and um, to have an ability to speak in ways that were important you know, to him um, to an audience and then bring them along on the journey as well. Mm. It was really powerful. Because even when he was not speaking at all, I mean, his, his music definitely has this storytelling quality to it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You take an audience, or even yourself, on a journey. You know, mm. you play a note, okay, what's the next note? Or what's the next phrase? Or what's the next way you're going to interject an idea or a thought, you know, you, you play the note again and you bend it or you mm. you shape it in a particular way to give it a little color, a little, mm, a little finesse or a little um, substance in a different mm. way mm. that again speaks to the journey. You're walking down the, down the street and you trip over a, a, a piece of pavement, okay? You try to catch yourself. Well, you're not going to do that in an organized way. It's, it's crazy, right. you know. Yeah. It's we're everywhere. Flailing. But then you save yourself. Mm. You know, you don't fall all the way to the ground. It's not pretty going down, but you get up. You're able to get up mm. and be okay with it. So even the journey in, in music or in, in jazz music um, is much the same. Something happens, there's a situation, then there's a reaction to it, and then some kind of resolution. Mm. may be good, may not be good, but it's moving, you know, it's moving on. And then you always have the choice to change directions, always have the opportunity to keep it going in a certain kind of way. So, mm. and be well with what, what came in the moment. And then, you know, also strive to continually improve it, mm. say it differently, um, find another way to speak a truth or a message, you know. So um, that mm. to me is tremendously important and um, 
keeps me on the path. You know, mm. keep say it another way, find another way to say it. You know, even in uh, teaching, we do that. You know, I get really bored if I say the same thing too many times. Sure. Um, the students get really, really bored. You know, so how can you say it differently, or what can you do to get their attention in a way that shakes them up mm. or allows them to think, oh, she's she's a hip old broad. You know, she's not so stiff and um, um, without the ability to, you know, laugh at herself, mm, you know. Mm. And again, the laughter, again, is a release of tension, you know. And when we're in that place, I think we can be open to so much more, to just so much good and um, inspiration of um, the life force, which, you know, I must say is all around me right now and I'm digging it. <laughs> because they are also part of that life force. Yeah. And as the music comes together with those things, it, it creates a really beautiful place um, of inspiration. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So actually, I have so many questions about your musical philosophy uh, that I'm tempted to dive into right now, but I want to ask you a couple more questions about Clark uh, before I do that. One of which is this. I mean, when you listen back to old interviews with Clark Terry, you know, before it was considered like cool to talk about this stuff, he was very explicit about the really horrific uh, racism and racist violence that he had experienced, mm. especially as a young person. Um, and it's really, it's unimaginable to me, I mean, what it must have been like for him to grow up in grinding poverty in an environment where uh, he's surrounded by pretty vicious racism and then through basically his, his genius and his work on his horn to work his way to a station in life where, you know, he's playing on late night TV, uh, you know, uh, basically a national celebrity. And no doubt, I mean, the racism, I'm sure, followed him there too. But uh, this, is, this is somebody who experienced such a wide spectrum of, of things in life. Do you, do you have any idea what it was all like for him. I don't know if he ever talked about, hmm. about that kind of stuff with you. Well, I, I know that he experienced it and he felt it very deeply, but the beauty of Clark Terry for me is his ability to overcome it. Mm. And he would overcome it not only with his horn, but in the way he greeted people, in the way he welcomed people into his world. He'd come off the stage sometimes exhausted. I mean, even toward the end of his life when he was really suffering with um, <clears throat> the diabetes. Mm. Tired, exhausted, hurting, uh, in pain. Um, but anybody that came up to him, he would take the time to welcome them, to mm. say thank you for coming, to mm. ingratiate himself um, in a way that help them to feel welcomed into his world. And I, I just, you know, to me that is so amazing because I know what it's like to come off the stage you're tired and you don't necessarily want to say hello, how you doing, and smile mm. and be all that. Every time Clark was. Wow. I never saw him be um, sort of disagreeable. Mm. I mean, at home, okay, but not when he was on stage or just off stage. Mm. He took the time. And so to me that was his way of moving past um, 
the difficulty that he experienced as as a black man. Mm. You know, um, he couldn't change it, mm. but he found a clever way to put it on his horn and be able to talk about people like a dog <laughs> through his mumbles. Oh wow! So that was his oh, expression, wow. and and again for those that understood it and understood the coding. Mm. They knew exactly what it was saying. He could call you a dirty mm, 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 yeah in a New York minute, and you knew just with the the inflection on his horn, right? What he was doing, yeah, okay? wow. And that was the way he did it. But he did it. He was from the generation too of graciousness. Mm. You know, in the face of adversity, he was always gracious. He was always a gentleman. He was always, and, and others like in Max Roach was the same way. Mm. Privately, it was a different story. Sure. But on stage, it was this elegance, and that was a part of the black experience, too. You were always, you always held yourself in this place of grace and, and beauty. Projecting excellence. Yes. Mm. You don't succumb to the stupidity that may be around you. You know, you, Maya Angelou's another one, a mm. great influence on me. Same thing, this air of elegance mm. and grace strength because she had to be yeah because if you gave it up for a second then they win yeah yeah they win um and i it's hard for me to recognize that in today's um world mm. i think we've let go of it a little bit um and i i hmm it's changed. It's just changed so significantly. The way you dress, the way Clark would dress, Lord have mm. mercy. His shoes, his socks, the way he con coordinated again was another expression of artistry. Yeah. You know? And I know it was specific to that time period, but you, you didn't step out in torn up jeans. Yeah. I know it's a thing for today, and it's cool, and I get it. It's counter, you know, a counter, a counter to the establishment. I get all right, of that. Right. But I also say, it was a beautiful thing to see a man dressed so elegantly when mm. he was held in some people's mind yeah. to being enslaved or uh, uh, you know uh, domestic or, or mm. whatever it might be. No, these were elegant, well-dressed, educated men. Yeah, you couldn't be more elegant, I mean. And to put that kind of magic on an instrument, mm. Lord have mercy improvisationally in the moment not something written down in the moment you're coming up with it just like this right but it speaks to the culture too because that's what they lived a situation mm. would happen you had to come up with an, a solution immediately wow so it comes right out of the culture that's why you can't learn this in school mm. that's why to me jazz programs in colleges don't work because you're not getting that real um, accessibility to the tools that are necessary to craft what you need to craft mm. on the stage. It's... Well, You're removed it's a, a little bit from the source of the music. Exactly, exactly. So, of course, you know, mm. uh, colleges and universities don't want to necessarily hear that. But it's um, true. Because those that teach typically are ones that are there that are not necessarily on the road not necessarily, some are, mm. but it, it's a real divide, you know, and I think both are useful, but we have to understand the context mm. in order to be able to do what we need to do, so. And that this isn't a substitute for that. Right, right.
you don't go to school to learn how to be a good jazz musician. Yeah. You go to school, yes, that's good. That's great. That's fine. But you got to be in the trenches doing it night after night, playing it, mm -hmm. taking the risk, going out there, falling on your face, getting back up, trying it again mm -hmm. to really, really, really get it and understand what that's about. Mm. You know, so I don't know if I answered no, your question. No, that was, that was a, very, uh, a very good answer. Last question about Clark. Um, you and your twin sister, Mona, were working on this lovely project where you put together a children's book about the life of Clark. I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about that project. Hmm. Well, um, yes. The book idea came um, actually from Clark's wife, Gwen Terry, who had already written a book about Clark. And um, she felt that a children's book needed to be written and mm. and said okay would you would you all do it and Mona and I are you know not authors at all but um, we said hmm okay and this was when Clark was quite ill he was in mm. bed and you know um, near the end of his life um, and so we we went to the back bedroom and said okay Clark what do you think um, what do you think of this idea? Do you have an idea for a title? He said, yes, of course he did. <laughs> <laughs> he said, how about Harkett's Clark? Wow. He said, That sounds on brand, yeah. Okay, and then we added um, The Extraordinary Adventures of C.T. and His Horn. Mm, mm. C.T. was his nickname. Right, right. And so, you know, we did, again, it was just like learning to play jazz, that process of learning how to write wow. about Clark Terry as a boy and taking an adventure that he might have experienced and creating a story around it. So that's what the book became. I think it's seven chapters wow. with music um, mm. um, that we still plan to, to put out. We finished the book, but... Um, it, some obstacles to overcome. You yeah, know. publishing is a killer. So it's it's a story about um, Clark's first um, trumpet and mm. how he, um, what he went through to find his first trumpet, mm. and all the difficulties with that. You know, again, we situated it in St. Louis where he grew up, and what he might have had or would not have, um, but his quest for that trumpet was greater than anything he couldn't have mm. because of his situation. Mm. And in the end, he gets exactly what he wants. Mm. So the idea is to teach young um, children about um, the ability to hold on to a dream no matter mm. what and to go after it no matter what comes your way. Keep striving, keep reaching for it because it will come. Mm. You know, Maybe not in the way you thought, you know, originally, but it will present itself to you. Mm. So we're really excited about the book. It, it's all in rhyme. We thought because it's a story about a musician, the rhyme would make sense. And then um, accompanying music for each chapter that helps it tell the story. Wow. So it just Beautiful. opened up this whole new avenue for for Mona and I um, creatively um, and we had a lot of fun there were a lot of moments like um, 
you know, where we would just laugh and feel Clark's presence, mm. you know, in the midst of it, helping to push us along the way. And uh, those moments again when Clark was screaming at me, you know, I understood them, what he was preparing me for, mm. to mm. reach deeper inside myself and find something, mm. you know, along with Mona that would um, take us to the, the world of um, being authors of children's mm. books. So, um, and the expanded nature of creativity. Yes, I'm a violinist, yet, but it doesn't have to stop there. Right. For truly creative artists, we can embrace many aspects of what that is, mm. you know, as Clark did as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah so stay tuned. Yeah. It's, it's coming. It's coming. Yeah. And it, it must have been so wild to, I mean, it, it would be for me to, to think about someone who's always been in your life as an elder as as someone who's a full generation up from you and then envision them as a child and write this story about them as a child was that well you know so much of clark clark's story you know just personally with me was he he always had a chuckle and a grin mm. that's even a line in the book with a chuckle and a grin always he would mm. do this funny little chuckle that he felt like a child you know it was mm. with this childlike spirit so even though he, you know, was in his 90s as we're writing this book, I still felt his spirit as a young man, mm. you know, and a, a youthfulness, I'll say it that way, wow. in, in the way that he did things, in the way that he saw life, wow. you know. He wasn't a stodgy old curmudgeon at all. Mm. He was full of life, even laying in the bed, you know, unable to move. Mm. There was a spirit there that just continued. Wow. Just continued on. So, and a, and a lesson for all of us. Get up. Mm. Go do your stuff. You know, go right. do what you were called to do. Don't lay down. Don't, you know, succumb to age or mm. other kinds of limitations that knock us down. Get up and do it. Mm. You know, so thank you, Clark. Mm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. previous conversation between the two of us you've said a little bit about the connection between improvisation and freedom I wonder if you mm. would feel like expanding on that now drifting into a little bit about your musical philosophy uh, as a violinist you know that comes with a lot of triggers mm. <laughs> especially if you're trained in in the way many violinists are, um, from a, a very decided structure, you know. And there are there were many times in my life that I just felt like I just didn't fit into that structure. But because I played a violin, I didn't know how to break free of it. I didn't know how to go in my own way. Mm. I didn't know how to have a voice. In, in that world, so necessarily. Um, and it would be, I think, well, it started with Clark and then, and then under the tutelage also of Max Roach, who with the Uptown String Quartet um, asked 
us to come together and begin to create something new. He didn't have a plan for it. He didn't say, we'll do this, 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 any sense of structure. Mm -hmm. He did support us financially and with um, finding people to write for the string quartet. Mm. But he was constantly telling us to come off the page. Mm. I didn't even know what that meant. Come off the page, what do you mean? That, that's what I do. That's what we do. <laughs> come off the page. What does We're that mean? We're string players, yeah. yeah. Um, but we began to understand what he was talking about as a way of freeing ourselves from that page because when you when you're solely focused on staring at it it you block out everything else that may want to come to you mm. your attention is mm. is narrow focused on that page but as you start to come off the page when you start to improvise, even when you play material that you've played before but you haven't memorized, you don't even need to look at it, which became mm. possible for us within the string quartet. We could look at each other and wow. there's a whole nother world going on when wow. we're looking at each other and communicating as we're playing, you know, little laughing and joking and, and little nudges or little ways to encourage each other, to egg each other on, mm. to grab something new in our expression. And so what that caused me to do was to then understand the power that I had to tell myself, to instruct myself how to come off the page. Mm. You don't need any notes in front of you, hear it. Hear it, play it, hear it, play it. Mm. And yes, I can work at the idea of improvisation and how to calm myself mm. to relax myself enough to be able to receive the information because when we're tense and nervous you're tight nothing's getting in right yeah <laughs> nothing is gonna come and take root in your spirit mm. when you're too tight and tense fully tensed up yeah. yeah you gotta you gotta find another way so that the information can gently guide uh, flow in because mm. it's happening so quickly, wow. you don't have time to relax yourself and then let it in and It'll then get gone. tense again. Yeah. yeah, it's gone. Yeah. So you could, you have to stay ready through through the ability to be okay with yourself and trust yourself mm. and trust. So if I hear something, it's really about trust. Mm. Do I have enough trust within myself to go with what I'm hearing? Or even sometimes when I'm thinking, I'll think a note. I don't necessarily hear it. I'll think it. Do I have the ability to go there in this moment? Do I trust myself enough to go there? Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. Hmm. I'm going to be really honest. Wow. But when I do, I'm always like, wow. Oh, my gosh. That, that's like, it's like accessing information on another frequency. Mm. And it's not even a good way to describe it, but it's there are no barriers. It's like this beautiful nature here. I'm one with it. Hello, how are you? You know, yes, I'm a human being and you're a plant, but we're connected. Mm. Music is the same, can be the same way. Sound. Mm. I won't even say music because music has a certain 
reference to something that's written. Right, right. Sound doesn't. Mm. Sound is free. And it's an interesting way to think about it, too. Sound, nobody owns sound. Mm. People can own music and the way it's arranged on the page. But sound is sound. It's there. It comes, it goes. Mm. We grab a hold of it. We don't. We, we change it up, whatever that is. Mm. And so learning to work with the idea. And, and even when we study, um, when I study African-based music, of which jazz comes from, mm. they don't. They don't call it music. They call it so a sound culture. Wow. They don't call it music. Music is the academy, is mm. Western European training, mm. which is different, you know. Um, so being accessible to that 24-7 is improvisation. Mm. You're just always open to it. You know, last week I had a silly little gig I was playing um, and I didn't, um, I had to play a song all by myself and I had to be the rhythm, the the harmony, the melody, I had to be everything. Wow. And it was like, how am I going to do this to this song? Um, so I said, oh, just get still, Lisa, just get still. And all of a sudden a little introduction popped in my head. It was perfect mm. in that moment just came right to me but again I was open to it so I could I could find it and um, I even heard the note in my head mm. where to start and then then how to lead it into the melody I needed to play and I was like yes <laughs> it's still there you know so um, the information's always available to us when we are calm enough to receive it wow wow that's amazing. Yeah. Wow. I want to ask you about your journey creating a sound on the violin that's rooted in, in black culture and black musical traditions. Um, and, and also what it meant to you to go on that journey. Mm. Uh, when I was working on my graduate degree, um, First, my master's, um, I became aware of these incredible um, string bands, um, primarily in the South, um, that um, worked and played, but in a way that was unfamiliar to me, mm. with a strong rhythmic sense. Mm. Um, and individuals like uh, Stuff Smith and Eddie South mm. and um, uh, I'm trying to think of his name from Kansas City. Um, uh. Uh, yeah, that guy. <laughs> It'll come. Um, Claude Fiddler Williams, mm, mm, who mm. I had an opportunity to work um, with in New York City when I was doing wow. Black and Blue. Wow. He was there before I was. And mm. then there came a point when he needed someone to sub for him and I was called in to do it. Okay. So it also gave me an opportunity to be around him and um, to um, to learn from him mm. and the way he learned. And it was a totally different um, journey toward the instrument. Mm. You know, the, again, the way he heard things, the way he incorporated rhythm, the way he played rhythmically also. Um, 
just became fascinating. So I, I took it upon myself to learn more about them and to make that sort of the center of my study in, mm. in graduate school, um, understanding these ensembles. And then, of course, I, I joined Uptown String Quartet, which was another extension of that, mm -hmm. you know. Um, it was interesting um, and powerful experience. And so I then am suddenly aware of all these incredible black string players. Mm. And growing up thinking and seeing, in many, many instances, I was the only one. Yeah. And how I felt about that, you know, feeling uncomfortable, feeling like I was never good enough or I was never this enough. Or and it was even teachers, some teachers that I had that were really destructive in the way they taught because they subscribed to the same way of thinking um, that people like myself were not uh, good enough to be a part of that. Of white supremacy, basically. A white supremacist well, framework. You know, what they understood about um, European classical music and who it was written for. Mm -hmm. But just recently, I had the opportunity to give um, a pre-concert talk about Anton Dvorak's New World Symphony. Mm -hmm. And it was always interesting. I, you know, when I went on, I, I played in Atlanta Symphony, played Nashville Symphony, so I had wonderful um, opportunity to play in, you know, professional orchestras. Um, um, and, of course, I played that work. And every time we got to that second movement, either that or the, his um, string quartet, the American string quartet, there's something about the slow movement. I, I hear it and I go, wait a minute, this, that sounds just like a Negro spiritual to me. Mm. And I had grown up with spirituals. Mm. It's another interesting story. Really was my mother, um, and I'm biracial. My yeah. mother was white, my father's black. It was my mother that gave me the love of spirituals, which was always interesting to me. But she understood the power of those songs. Mm. And she wanted to make sure that her daughters really understood that. And so the first CD I did was all spirituals. Some, three mm. of them were original and the rest were traditional spirituals. But getting back to Dvorak, in his second movement of the New World Symphony is a slow movement that sounds just like a spiritual, just like, what's that about? It wouldn't be until years later that I realized, actually, it was um, Max Roach who showed me. Hmm. I was in his library at his home. He said, Lisa, read this. And he pulled out um, Souls of Black People, first of all, had me read it, about the importance, importance and significance of Negro spirituals wow. in American culture. Wow. Um, du Bois. Yes. Uh -huh. um, and then I had the opportunity to research Dvorak's symphony and realized that Anton Dvorak had a very strong relationship with H.T. Burley. H.T. Mm. Burley is the first person to document, to write out Negro spirituals because it was an oral tradition. Uh -huh. They were passed from generation to generation. They were never written. Yeah. Dvorak, it helped him to learn how to write music. Transcribe. H.T. Uh -huh. Burley helped Dvorak to understand the power and the significance of those songs to American culture. Wow. And so we have this fusion mm. of 
music and culture mm. in such a profound way that is necessary for us to understand here in the United States. Mm. That history has been forgotten. So recently, I was asked to do this pre-concert talk, and that's what I did. But mm -hmm. I, I spoke about it not from a, just a musicological perspective. Right, right. I spoke about it from the perspective of how I felt sitting in an orchestra, hearing these songs, mm. how it created for me a sense of belonging for both traditions, how for me I understood the powerful connection of these two important men, one from Europe, mm. another one from the United States, black American from the United States, and the beauty of their conversation and inter interaction and acceptance of one another. Mm. Why the hell can't we do that? Right. Why are we so hung up about culture? Mm. What, even sitting in a symphony orchestra, why aren't we embracing these things in ways that will make us better and will make us well and keep us well? Mm. So that is my mission now. Mm. Yes, mm. I'll play Dvorak. Yes, I'll play a blues and be grateful for both sides of it, mm. you know, and hopefully help others to understand the, the necessity for understanding that. In fact, I have a student now in my class this summer who's a violinist and um, very much a European classical player and very guarded about it, but mm. I'm breaking them down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have him playing the blues before I'm done and understanding the importance of that, mm. the ability just to accept into your world something outside of what you know mm. and be well with it because you're an American. Mm. This is American music. Mm. It's not, it's, it's here for all of us. Mm. We, we have to recognize that it's important. Again, I'm not sure I answered your question. No, you, you actually answered my question <laughs> and my next question. So yeah, you're, you're killing it. Don't, uh, don't worry about that. Um, I mean, I, I want to kind of go a little deeper there. Um, talking about you as a, as a player and as an improviser and about these multiple traditions or these multiple musical disciplines that you straddle, um, you just have such an incredible technique. Uh, I mean, you're super dialed in rhythmically tonally, timbrally, like we talked about at the beginning, like your sound is is a huge part of the whole picture, but also your slides on the fingerboard of the violin and your ability to bend notes and move between notes. When I hear you play that way, it's like, it's very activating for me as a listener uh, because I feel like you're creating these melodic lines that have so much vitality to them that they become almost like living beings. Um, and it's a, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a sound that to me has a strong spiritual quality and it's a sound that can't necessarily be entirely boiled down to uh, any single musical tradition. If you want to say the blues or African-American music or certainly classical music, I mean, none of these genres fully contains what you do and, and I mean, we always kind of say that genres are, are not there to help the musicians. They're there to help those of us who aren't musicians categorize things and compare things. Um, so what, yeah, I mean, what is it that you've uh, 
how have you been able to to step into this space where all of these musics are intersecting and and create such a spiritual sound there? That's a heavy question. Um, well, I think part of it for me is um, I just like changing things up. Mm. I remember early on when I was in my 20s, I somehow came up with the notion that I should really be changing directions every 10 years. I mean, radically change directions. Mm. And um, the first, you know, rounds of, you know, my 20s, my 30s, my 40s, um, and I'll stop there. <laughs> I, I did exactly that. Not because I planned it, but it, it just seemed to work out that way mm. for me. And um, there's a, I had a season on Broadway for 10 years from playing Broadway huh. shows. I had a season with Uptown String Quartet was 10 years. Mm -hmm. I had a season with um, uh, studio work as well yeah. you know, as a violinist. So I, I'm just I was constantly changing. And then a solo career that was developing a career as a uh, composer, actively mm. involved in composing, I'll say that, or arranging mm. um, and developing um, groups. So it's just, it's. I guess I get kind of tired of the same thing over and over and over again. That's why I never saw myself sitting in a symphony orchestra playing mm. the same repertoire. I said, eh, no, it's not me. It's not what I want to do. Um, I want to continue to change directions mm. and add to my experience. Who was it? It was Clark or Max. Spoke about that all the time. You don't ever, it was Max. You don't Sounds ever like Max, right? take away anything that you are. Mm. In fact, oftentimes um, jazz musicians would say to me, "Well, you gotta, you can't, you can't do any of that classical stuff anymore." And first of all, it's, that word is problematic. Classical what? Are you right. talking about European music? Are you talking about jazz? Are you talking about hip hop? Are you talking about R&B? What are you talking? What? Fair. So that's the fair. first. Yeah. That's the first thing. But you got to get rid of everything that you did before in the European classical world. And Max said, no, you don't ever put down who you are and what you are, ever. Mm. You just add to it, and mm. you add to it. And that's exactly what he did in his life. Yeah, he, he was there with Dizzy Gillespie and, and Charlie Parker doing the bebop thing. But as he moved on, he kept changing and morphing into other things that included... Uh, work with dancers, work with poets, work with uh, string quartet, mm -hmm, okay, mm -hmm. and on and on and on. Spirituals. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And doing it in a really interesting and powerful way. So I think he taught me that, the mm. ability to do that and not allow yourself to get stuck in one, one mold. Mm. Same thing in my teaching. I don't teach in a, in a typical way. Mm. I go in there and shake it up. Mm. You know, it's like, Today's not working. Nothing I brought in today is working. What is going to work when I go improvisational in the moment? I'm looking around the room, looking at the students. What do they need? They're checked out. Okay, what do they need right now? How do I shake them up? Mm, okay, mm. get them talking, get them engaged mm. about something that's important to them. We'll find a way to relate it to the study. Always will. And if we don't, that's okay too. Mm. Who says it can't go in another direction? Yeah. And... I just find that to be 
really, really useful. Mm. And then we don't, um, then I don't walk away the feeling that I always, I'll say it, I always suck mm. if, I did, if it didn't come off well. If I change direction, something else again will come. Am I relaxed enough to receive it? Sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not, yeah. you know? But we've gotta, in my view, keep striving for the ability to change it up, mm. make it new, freshen it up, try it in a different way, mm. different tempo, maybe not in four, four, do it in three, four. What's gonna happen if I change it into a waltz yeah. as opposed to um, a march or whatever it might be. Mm. Um, but just stay fresh in your mind and in your thinking. And again, know that um, the creative spirit that dwells within each of us is alive and well all the time. It's waiting for us to show up. Mm. Wow. Wow. For us to show up, not for it to come to us. No, it's there. Okay? This is not creative spirit going on here. Mm. Color and I keep using this as an example, but that's Mother Nature. So the same is true with us. It's, we're the ones that gotta strip away all the the restraints and the wow. the barriers that cause us not to be aware of it. And you know, I, and that's as simple as you know. I'll have a thought. I'm busy preparing a lecture or grading or whatever it is that I think I have to be busy with on the computer, and then a idea pop in my head. Get up out of here. Take a drive up to the mountains. And it's like, I, how can I go now? I can't go now. I have too much to do. I said, get out of here. Take a drive to the mountains. And again, every time I do that, there is something waiting there for me uh. that helps me with the thing I've been wrestling with. Every time. Again, I have to let go. Yeah. And be ready. You know, and it could be, I remember it was really interesting. I, I came out of, um, Santa Monica College and I was sitting in the parking lot in my car and I was tired because I had just done a long lecture and I don't know it was heavy and I was mm. wasn't working mm. I just sat in my car two crows come wow sit on and land on my the front of my car and I know there's you know a lot of uh, beliefs around crows and the magical nature of them and I said, oh, gosh, I guess the crow's nose. <laughs> <laughs> and the crow was telling me, let go of whatever that is. And then what was so interesting was when the crow got ready to leave, fly, it did not just take off and go up. It, it, it lifted up off my car and then went sideways, flew mm. sideways. I've never seen a bird do that. Wow. Fly sideways. Mm. And I said, now that's different. Okay, that means change it up. Go mm. sideways. Don't go forward. Go sideways. Mm. So again, those messages are there that are really, really important and profound and help me to stay mm, fresh in my thinking, mm. you know, new in my thinking. And the direction may come from a really different uh, place than I thought of, you know. It's not on the computer. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Not on the computer. It, conversation with somebody a crow landing on my car mm, mm, you know again mm. am i ready to receive it or not yeah so. wow i i also want to ask you about your connection to um 
to sacred music because it seems like, uh, you know, not only do you play in churches a lot, but you play music that incorporates gospel. And, um, and, and like I was saying, I mean, as, as a listener, I, I find a lot of your playing to have a pretty uh, significant spiritual dimension to it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I wonder, I wonder how you see the connection between music and the sacred or... Well, you know, spirituals, Negro spirituals taught me, they've taught me a lot about the message that's contained in those songs as an expression that is, again, coded like the blues. Mm. And when you talk about blues, it grows out of the experience of spirituals, direct, you know, um, segue from spirituals to blues. Mm. Same... um, heartfelt expression, but we call one sacred, we call the other secular. So what Mm. is really the difference between the two? Is there a difference between the two? I don't think so. Mm. So who put those labels on those things Mm. and deem one good and the other one not so good? Right. It's dangerous. Mm. Um, Mm. So Mm. what do we call it? What do we we call this music that we play? Why can't it all be sacred in nature? Mm. Something that honors not only God or whatever belief system you happen to subscribe to, um, but the life force, Mm. um, the uh, uh, creativity and beauty. Is that not sacred? Mm. Um, So I've I've had... um, and also when I was in school, you know, I grew up in a Christian faith and, and whatnot. But there were always some things that were, that didn't make sense to me, that I couldn't understand. They seemed contradictory to one another. And when I was in school and began to search more deeply into the meaning and purpose of things, I began to see a lot, especially in the notion of label, labeling things mm-hmm. as good or bad or evil or godly or acceptable or unacceptable Mm. as ways to control the narrative Mm. and what we think. Mm. And so it really changed for me. And I, I started to understand sacred anything on a on a different level Mm. Um, that is personal to me. You know, it didn't necessarily have to go along with a particular denomination or understanding of that. It can at times, and it does, but it could also be broader. And then I, you know, my travels also have taught me that, and I had a, did a residency in Bali, and that just changed my life. Oh, wow. It just completely changed my life. and um, connected me to other deeper ways of understanding and thinking about what I consider to be sacred. Mm. So again, that can enter into music making in the same way. I love spirituals. I love them. It was given to me by my mother, you know, Mm. and my father reinforced it. And that will always be an important part of me. And um, in the way that I love I know, Mozart's Requiem, mm. 
or, you know, a great European classical work that's sacred. I mean, it's beautiful. It's powerful. But let's love it all. Mm. Let's embrace it all. Let's not qualify one as this or that, mm. but see the beauty in it and be blessed by it and grow and deepen in our ability to accept it and mm. own it Lovely. as our own. Yeah. I want to ask you a little bit, yeah, I mean, they, they kind of keep coming up, but I want to ask you about the Uptown String Quartet and Max Roach. Um, so we're talking about a group that in its original uh, lineup was Eileen Folson on cello, Maxine Roach on viola, and you and Diane Monroe on violins, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And I mean, tell us a little bit about the story of, of, of how you even got started as, as a group, about how Max was in the picture. Um, let's just start it there. Well, <clears throat> actually, it was um, my sister Zella, cellist, um, oh. who was living in New York City at the time. I was in Atlanta playing with Atlanta Symphony. And Zella and Maxine Roach were very good friends. They worked a lot together in New York City. Zella was in New York Philharmonic, and then she also did some um, work in the city, recording work and whatnot. Um, and Maxine was very active, of course, in New York City. And so they became fast friends. And as Max is forming the Uptown String Quartet, um, they needed another violinist. So Zella encouraged Maxine and Max to call me in, a, in Atlanta. So I get the call, and, and I hate to admit it, but at the time I didn't even know who Max Roach was. Oh my gosh. Shh, don't tell him. <laughs> but I quickly learned. Yeah. <laughs> and they said, we're premiering actually the double quartet, which was Max's quartet mm. with drums, uh, bass, trumpet and saxophone right combined together with uptown string quartet mm -hmm. we weren't we, we weren't quite uptown string quartet at that point it was the double quartet okay okay um and they were premiering the group at the blue note in new york city oh cool so i said oh that sounds really interesting and i just happened to have the week off from the orchestra atlanta symphony at the time so i went to new york all ready to go um, they sent me the music in advance. I went, oh my, let's see. Um, there was a tune that was written for us by Cecil Bridgewater, trumpet player mm. at the time, called Bird Says. And it's kind of a quote, it was a very much bebop kind of tune with bebop lines and everything. I had never played bebop and I was just like <laughs> horrified. Terrified. And I remember walking into, um, Rehearsal studios here in New York, um, very famous, um, Carol Studios. Okay. And that was the first thing out of my mouth was, his bird says first, oh, right. <laughs> you know, just freaked out. <laughs> so we rehearsed and then we had a week of the Blue Note and it was just like I had stepped into something I had always dreamed of. Mm. So we did for a couple years um, the double quartet at 
did a few things and I was involved. And then my, my tenure with Atlanta ended and I moved on. And about that time is when Max decided that the quartet needed to be, Uptown String Quartet needed to be its own entity. And he, I think, got a record deal for us. So he wanted to put this quartet together in a more formal way. And so Zella, at that point, um, left for Europe to pursue a career in, in, in um, symphonic world in Europe. Mm. And Germany, she was in Germany, and then she went to France and was there for almost 30 years wow. as a principal cellist. Mm. Zella was bad. Mm. It's an incredible player. Um, and I was in Nashville, but then my job there ended. They went, the orchestra went belly up. So oh I said, okay, New York, here I come. Mm. So I just, boom, was another one of those moments. I changed direction. Yeah. And I went to New York. I didn't have any money. I didn't have anything. But I just went. I just had a feeling that, you know. So the quartet started, and um, we did our first album, and um, it hit like crazy. People were really um, amazed by what we were doing. Mm. And it it landed us on the cover of Strings Magazine, which is a Strad Magazine, excuse me. Oh, Both wow. string, Strings Magazine and Strad Magazine, which is a gigantic, um, very prestigious magazine mm -hmm. in the string world, Strad Magazine. And so suddenly here's a string quartet of four black women. Yeah. Know, and, and people go, hmm, this is really interesting. And in the process, Max began to encourage us to start writing our own material. And, you know, again, it was like, what, huh? We String players don't do that. What? At least at that time. Right. Um, so he had uh, several people that he knew, like Jimmy Heath and Cecil Bridgewater and um, Bill Lee, who is uh late father of late of father spike of lee, spike lee. Yeah. that's right right and he wrote bill wrote the most beautiful two songs for us mm. one is called remembering i should bring you the cd so you can hear it it's really beautiful it's on that first record right uh uptown uh is max roach presents i think so yes. i have it yeah, yeah. Um, yeah no i know those i know those tracks. just beautiful writing amazing and we began to learn how to write i think Eileen, the cellist at the time, um, wrote the first compositions, mm. and she, she, Eileen was brilliant. She's no longer with us. Mm. Um, brilliant, brilliant player, brilliant writer, very... <laughs> she, was, she was a jokester in the group. Subtle, quiet, but like, sh like quiet to, what do you call that? She'd blow up the joint. I mean, yeah. she'd play, and it would be just like, some of her solos on Along Came Betty, mm. a piece by uh, Benny Golson. Yeah. Were just, you know, harmonically difficult, but she would navigate her way through, you know, not only walking the bass line, but soloing as well in a way that was just powerful and beautiful. Mm. Mm. Okay. And I, I just want to ask like a last question about the Uptown String Quartet. I wonder, I mean, very generally, and answer this however you want, would you mind reflecting on what some of the quartet's goals were and some of your creative processes that were at play to, to create that music? It's a very deep question. At the time, I don't think we really had any goals. Hmm. We were just trying to keep up with the challenge that was put before us. 
Uh, oh, but we eventually learned that we were on a trajectory that was new, exciting, and also necessary. Mm. Especially when we landed the interview uh, and cover for Strad Magazine, because it was saying to the world essentially, it because it was an internet, it is an international magazine. Here we are, mm. and there is no denying what Uptown String Quartet is here to do, mm. and that's to change um, the perception of um, what a string quartet can be, mm. both. Um, from the perspective of race and also from the perspective of four women mm. doing it mm. and holding their own as composers, as mm. artistic visionaries, um, as um, women who could speak boldly about who we are and what we've been and what we were becoming. Mm. Um, and it's so interesting to me now, um, young string players uh, that have come to Los Angeles to work um, and are doing very, very well, um, come to me and say, I listened to Uptown String Quartet growing up. Wow. And it changed my life. Wow. And gave me the ability to imagine something similar for myself. Mm. And at first I'm like, oh man, so that means I'm old. <laughs> but then what I realize is that is a, a tremendous compliment. Um, mm. Because at the time we didn't know we were doing that. Um, and I've actually heard that from a, a string player too. Hmm. Uh, we didn't know we were doing that. Um, but now looking back, I, I understand that. And um, it, it's necessary, it's important. Each generation will have what they have and then have to pass it to the next, mm. you know, and to be able to pass that legacy along is um, not only a gift, but a tremendous sense of accomplishment. Mm. Um, and, you know, just like everybody else, we were, we were not perfect in what we were doing necessarily. We were afraid, we were frightened, because it was so new and different. But as I said, also necessary. Mm. So the situation presented itself, and really the only thing to do was to say, yes, mm. let's do it. Mm. Let's make it happen. Um, and it was, it was for a season. We were together about 10 years. Mm. Um, and then due to several situations, uh, some members decided to go in another way. Um, and I, I held a lot of um, regret about that because I loved the quartet and I loved what we were doing. Um, but I also understand it was necessary at the time, mm. you know. And so as we come back together in November, yeah, um, it will be interesting to see uh, we've already in conversation, you know, on Zoom, talking about preparation for this. I already see a shift, you know, in each person's voice and mm. strength within the quartet, mm. um, and bringing 
our authentic selves to the work, you know, to say something again that's really important. Um, and pushing the boundary, again, we're not only just playing some of the things we, we've done from the past, but we're also incorporating new work um, wow. and working with a Native American woman, which was a request and desire on the part of Maxine Roach to work mm. in that capacity because the area where we're playing is um, heavily populated by Native culture. Mm. So we're this uh, uh, wonderful artist, singer, and um, she's many things. She's a dancer as well. Will join us and we will, um, as I said recently to them, um, construct and then deconstruct mm. maybe popular things that relate to the story of Native culture in this country alongside African-American culture. Mm. And it was funny, the response, they were, the, re the, other, the rest of the quartet members were, thought it was a good idea, but then they quickly said in their very <laughs> uptown string quartet way, Listen to Lisa. She's being all deep about it. <laughs> so, you know, we, we build each other up and then we can smack each other down. But in a loving way. It's yeah. like, you know, keeping the humor in it and, and finding the joy in the creation of these things, you know. Because it's, it's a really heavy subject when you start dealing with Native culture, too, and the atrocities there and what oh, you want to yeah. show in the music. But what, where's the joy as women coming together to do this? Let's also magnify that as well. And um, it, it's, again, it's cutting edge and we're changing it up again, you know? So um, like the river that flows, you know, it sort of has the same path, but all the ripples and all the, the waves and ripples change, they're different, you know? So we follow that that path as well. If I can say it in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, as we wind down, I just want to ask you about a couple people who you've encountered over the course of your life and career. Um, starting, I guess, with Bill Lee, actually, who who mm. we were just talking about in the context of the Uptown String Quartet, uh, the composer, bassist, arranger, um, just legendary figure and. American music and in the New York art scene. Absolutely. <clears throat> I'm trying to remember if I met him first playing one of Spike's movies, because he did um, what, the earlier the earlier movies. Right. Bill he scored all of he scored them. them yeah. yeah, before Terrence Blanchard took over. Mm. Um, and I, I can't remember the timing of that, if that came first or his coming to the string quartet. But I know it was a result of, he of course knew Max. Sure, you sure. Know, on the scene and all. And so, and I, I would imagine Max realized that he would be fantastic in being able to score something for string quartet, and he was. Oh very, yeah. Very beautiful, um, atypical, mm. but just packed with such, beauty and power yeah um and so bill <laughs> he was his own man mm. the way he did things the way he approached things both in the the um in the studio with um with a large orchestra as well as with the uptown string quartet 
But when it came to us, he kind of left it to us to figure out how to make it work. Mm, mm. He didn't really interfere too much. And we did. And it was a, it was a beautiful journey of discovery mm. with his music. And we always, you know, we're so sad that we're not going to be able to play that um, for the, the concert we have coming up. Mm. Because um, when Eileen Fulson, the, the cellist, our the first cellist with, with the string quartet, passed away, a lot of her, her um, parts of the music went with her. We can't find it anywhere. Oh, wow. And, so, and then we were going to go to Billy, and he just passed. Yeah. So it's like, oh, man. But it's such beautiful music and so well written that you just lay back in it and, mm. um, and just play it. You know, again, not looking at the page. You just know it from mm. another understanding, you know, that's just really extraordinary. So, wow. But we'll most definitely give a nod to him, mm. you know, when we perform because it was, ex it was ex extraordinary. And he was just as down as he could be. Mm. I mean, no pretense, no, no mm -mm. he was just mm. a down brother, if mm. you know what I mean. Yeah. <clears throat> um, mm. From the life experience, you know. Finding a way to, to do it through music. Fat, fabulous, yeah. Amazing artist. Um, You've attended several Thanksgiving dinners at Maya Angelou's house. I, I wonder if you could talk about those experiences and about Maya Angelou. Who told you about that? <laughs> <laughs> Again, um, my dear sister Zella, who is no longer with us, <clears throat> was on a plane from a, um, L.A. actually to New York City. She was headed back to France where she lived. And who's sitting in first class but her absolute hero, Maya Angelou. And so she summons up the nerve to go to her and say, hello, and I've known your works for years. You have, your works have really blessed me and helped me in my life. Mm. And um, I also have a friend in France um, who comes to your Thanksgiving gatherings. And I always wished that I could be a a bug in her suitcase and travel <laughs> along. And Maya Angelou simply said to her, well, my dear, why don't you come? Just like that, didn't wow. know her from Adam, wow. but recognized something in her spirit that was touching. Mm. And so she said, I'll have my assistant get your information when you get off the plane. And wow. so Zella goes back to where she was sitting, of course, and um, didn't think that that would happen, mm. but sure enough, the, the assistant was standing there waiting for her to, to get her information. Wow. And three weeks later, Zella had an invitation in the mail to come to a Thanksgiving gathering. So she came back again from France, and um, I was living in Atlanta or Nashville, I don't remember. <clears throat> and she called me, she said, Lisa, I'm going to this thing at Maya Angelou's, and would you like to come with me? What? <laughs> What'd you say? <laughs> you better believe it. Mm. So we tootled off to North Carolina and and took part in this incredible celebration, really, that was more than just Thanksgiving. It was the coming together of all of these great literary artists, mm. musicians. Um, Ashford and Simpson were there. Wow. Um, 
and on and on. Jesse Norman was there. No it's way. on and no on. Way. And I'm just going, how did I land in this? Mm. And from Jump Street, she embraced us mm. and welcomed us into what she considered to be a family. Mm. And, uh, and as a result, I went back many, many times. Um, always had an invitation to come back for Thanksgiving, and I always went when I got an invitation. I mm. always went. I never mm. passed it up, mm. um, as did Zella. So, um, my goodness, what an incredible um, connection I mm. was able to have with her mm. and grow and learn from her. And I, again, incorporate her into so many things that I do mm. in, way, in ways that I am. Mm. And I think about responses that she had in the middle of really difficult situations, you know, mm. um, and how, again, with grace and dignity, she always spoke wise words mm. um, to live by. Mm. So a tremendous blessing for me, tremendous. Mm. And then on the subject of your sister, Zella, I wonder if you'd like to pay a short tribute to her. Mm. Any memories you'd want to share? Or... When I speak of Zella, it, it takes me to a very humble place um, because I feel in many ways I didn't know her when she was, as, as I, I know her now in mm. remembering her. Mm. Um, and the absolutely fantastic, extraordinary cellist that she was, mm. and all that she, as a woman, as a principal player in a European orchestra mm. that is not typically um, open to an American woman and a woman of color mm. um, in, a, in a leadership role, all that she encountered and fought against to have a place and to play so beautifully in the midst of it is remarkable to me, is, is a true testament to courage mm. and inner strength. Mm. Um, so, you know, when I feel a little uncertain or a little afraid of something, I think of her and what she did playing all of those huge opera solos, cello solos, um, and symphonic um, solos and concertos and everything that she played with the orchestra. Um, I think of her. Mm -hmm. And I hold on to her. And I remember something that she said about honoring those sweet little moments that come for an impromptu conversation, a dinner, a joke, mm -hmm. um, a something that in the moment speaks exactly to what we may need. And again, to have the awareness of what that is, mm. the gift that it is, the gift that it brings, and to fully soak it in. Mm. So I would say, Zella, I'm remembering the sweet little moments that we can have mm. with one another and celebrate that. Mm. Beautiful, beautiful. And I just want to ask you one last question if you, uh, if you feel up to answering it. You told me a while ago that you'd been asked uh, to play at your cousin's funeral, at Clark Terry's funeral, um, and that as you were standing over his casket, you were wondering how you were going to pull yourself together uh, emotionally and how you were going to 
put this together and, and measure up musically uh, to his incredible legacy. And that as, you, as all these thoughts were circulating, you said that you heard his voice, you heard him say something. Um, can, you, can you share what that is? He'd say improvise. Mm. He'd say, keep on keeping on. Mm. That was a, a, a saying of his. Mm. In other words, no matter what, just do not give up. Mm. Keep on keeping on. Um, and then he'd chuckle in the way that he did, you know, and make us all laugh. Mm. Um, at ourselves and at, at one another, mm. but in a way that, again, fills us up with joy, mm. joyful expectation mm. of what is to come. That's what I'd say he'd say. Mm. <laughs> Improvise. Mm. You got it. It's there. And I'm sure there were many, many other things that he, he said to me that day, mm. you know. Um, as he, as he so often did. Oh, he used to call me, um, I told you, half dimps. And then also, uh, Lisa, Lisa, Golgisa, Banana, Fana, Fofisa, V5, Fohisa, Lisa. <laughs> but he'd sing it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> sing it of in course. his own unique way. So, mm. yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, Dr. Lisa Terry, thank you so much for making yourself available. This has been a huge gift to me, and, and I, I think it'll be a gift to a lot of other people. So thank you so much. Thank you, Adam. It was a pleasure and a joy. Thank you. It's fun to talk like this, isn't it? It is. Yeah, just exchange ideas and think about things a little bit. So thank you for that opportunity. Thank you so much. <laughs>